might our days be lighter? How could the heart feel? How might the lands get wider if we love like that? Really love. people who are still coming in, and I want to um, welcome all of you. I'm Jeffrey Geisner for the uh, Jewish Culture and Holocaust Remembrance Group. I founded the group in May of 2021, and I'm super thrilled that you are all with us uh, for this very special and exclusive program. Also, uh, my friends in the audience, I see you all. I want to wish you all a great hello, um, and I'm going to switch the view here for a second so we all can see each other. We have a nice crowd uh, filling in. Uh, we have our survivors here. I want to acknowledge them, Sammy Steinman, uh, Jackie Gamash, I see. Also, it would be great if you would all get on camera uh, and change your black uh, tiles to uh, your faces so we can all have an exclusive and inclusive uh, group together, so I wish you would uh, do that. I'm going to, to give you a little bit of a, both uh, some instructions for our tech check, as well as what 
to expect from today's program. If you get knocked off your Zoom, don't worry about it. Just re-enter the Zoom as you did right now, and I will be readmitting re people throughout the program. Um, I want to also uh, let you know that we're going to be using chat today. So um, hello. Uh, you can just click on the chat, leave messages for any of the speakers that you want to, um, and the speakers will in turn be sending messages to you and also promoting um, their particular works or books or Talmudic um, readings that they are involved in. And um, we're going to start the program. Uh, as you know, this is a program for you, for you to be able to express yourself as an audience participant. So I fully want you to engage with our rabbis. You can call them by their first names. I'm going to introduce them. If you can wave them up on the very top is Cheryl Kamen, Rabbi Cheryl Kamen. She's from Texas. I have uh, Rabbi Francis Nataf who's from Israel. Where in Israel are you from, Rabbi? I'm located in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, okay. I have uh, Ben um, Rosenberg, Rabbi Rosenberg is in from New Jersey. And we have uh, Rabbi Jerry Kowalski, who's also from New York, wave Rabbi, so we can say hello to you, good. And they're gonna be providing a little bit more background on each of their, um, backgrounds as we start the program. I do have a series of questions that I'll be proposing to each of them. And at the same time, once they answer, we're gonna propose the same questions for you to respond to. So it's a very different format. It's not really you listening to uh, the rabbis. We really want you to be able to express yourself. We know that what's happening in Israel is causing tremendous trauma, uh, worry, fear, uh, intergenerational trauma back to the Shoah, and we're going to discuss that, but we really need you to be an active participant for this program to really jumpstart and really take a lift off. We're going to start the program, however, uh, today Israel um, created another uh, memorial of day of a silence where everyone stopped. So I'm going to take the start the program with a moment of several moments of silence um, and I'm going to play a video with audio, so I'm going to share my screen. I'll come back after it starts, and then we'll officially begin the program. And I'm multitasking, so we're getting people coming in as in the rapid fire. So let me share my screen. Let me start. Israel, Rish. 
Okay, obviously very moving and directly on point with where we are heading today. We're going to start by letting you know this is not a therapy session, but it is a discussion session. And um, if I seem distracted, I am continuing to let uh, people into the program. We're happy that all of you are here. We hope that you'll come on with your video so we can see you. We can take so our Questions are going to run like this for all of you who are maybe were late to the program. I'm going to ask the rabbis a series of questions, and I'm going to either ask in chat questions of you for them to be able to see answers flashing by their chat, as well as asking you the similar questions that I'm going to be asking of them. And so we want to uh, make sure that you also know that um, uh, Cheryl, Rabbi Cheryl uh, Kamen, is from Texas. She's a neuropsychologist as well, so she plays with two hats. 
um, Rabbi Nataf is uh, from Jerusalem in Israel, so he can provide us a very unique perspective of what is going on in Jerusalem and in the country. Uh, Rabbi Bernard Rosenberg is from New Jersey, and Rabbi Jerry Kowalski is from New York City. Each of them play very interesting roles. Um, and so I'm going to start by asking each of you, and you can please answer uh, Cheryl first, Francis second, um, Ben next, and Jerry last. Um, maybe you can tell us all how you got involved in the rabbinate, what made your what was the life decision that made you made and how did you choose to become a rabbi? How long have you been practicing in the rabbinate? Well, as you know, Jeffrey, I have called myself a baby rabbi. I'm the babyest rabbi here. I'm I'm just barely a rabbi. About uh I don't know, 10 well, 2016. Um, nope, it was before that. Anyway, somewhere back there. I started a Chavara after uh, many of us, our rabbi left from our synagogue and many of us left. My rabbi pushed me to start this Chavara. So I started it and I led this Chavara through all of our Shabbats and all of our holidays. And finally we did high holiday services. We did all of those. And finally they pushed me, pushed me, said, you need to become a rabbi. So I started in seminary. It was such a simple thing. And it was only two years ago, I think, that I got my semicha. So I'm really a tiny baby rabbi. And after I got my semicha, I stepped down and then I left. And I no longer have any form of congregation. But I do things in other ways. And there are many ways to be a rabbi. I do things in other ways. And I was, I'm not currently, I spent most of my adult life as a psychotherapist, neurotherapist, but I retired. And so I do a lot of both of those still in quiet ways with individuals. That's pretty much it. And I'm going to be leaning on uh, Cheryl for questions that you may want to bring forward. The worries, the fears, the traumas, the intergenerational survivor, uh, generational tr uh, traumas that you may want to seek out help with as these difficult times bring us closer in community. And so I'll ask Rabbi uh, Francis, the same question. Sure. Um, so I was always invo very involved in Jewish issues and activities. And in, in, uh, in college, I was the president of my Jewish student union. And I recall the time that I had an, a non-Jewish friend living down the hall. And he told me, you're going to become a rabbi. And that was, to me, like uh, a, a challenge not to become a rabbi. But uh, in the end... He was right. Um, essentially, also somewhat through the back alley, I decided after college that this Judaism thing is, is pretty interesting and, and deserves more time. So even though it was at the time I was looking at a, at a career in the Israeli Foreign Service, that was my career goal, um, I decided to take some time off and study in yeshiva. And for various reasons, I had to attach some sort of career to uh, my studies. And so what I would do with being a rabbi was, was a, a whole other question. Um, in fact, like Cheryl, I, uh, most of my rabbinic career, almost all my rabbinic career, I haven't been involved in the pulpit. And to me, that was a, that was a, hard, a really hard sell dealing with, with the politics and, and ceremonies and ritual. 
um, you know, I was always much more attracted to education, which is what I've spent most of my time doing. Um, in the course of uh, several decades, I've done all sorts of other things. Uh, writing, my, my uh, field officially is, is uh, Bible. That's what I teach on a, on a regular basis to adult students here in Jerusalem. And uh, the last few years, I've gotten involved a little bit in, in a pulpit, which uh, uh, made me realize that I was right to begin with not to enter it. We had tremendous politics, and I also stepped recently stepped out. So, you know, rabbis are, are, are difficult to uh, keep in pulpits. Uh, you know, the, the Jewish community has to do a better job of, uh, of making it attractive for us. Okay, Ben, uh, unmute yourself. And uh, you're next. You have to unmute yourself, Ben. How's that? Go ahead. Can you hear me? Yes. Same question to you. Uh, okay. Very, very quickly, Cheryl, you're doing a great mitzvah. Uh, we'll talk later. Uh, the Holocaust community and the two Gs, of which I'm one of them, second generation needs you. Um, my parents were survivors of the Holocaust, Auschwitz, and Skarzuszko. I was born in a DP camp, displaced persons camp, in uh, Germany. Uh, I was raised in Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, I decided to uh, get involved in the Holocaust because of my upbringing. Uh, never again became my motto. Uh, when people ask me, are you Orthodox, Conservative, or Reform? Uh, I, I answered kind of strangely, I say Jewish, dash Holocaustology. I basically have spent my whole life uh, writing and talking about uh, the Holocaust, how to prevent it. And uh, I, I have always said in all my writings and all my books, this was going to happen. Here it is. And by the way, Jeffrey, you're doing a great mitzvah with your show. Thank you for your kindness. Okay. And uh, Rabbi Jerry. How would you be able to give us your background and anything you want to add? Hi, everyone. Boker Tov, so Ryan Tov, depending on what part of the world you're in. Um, I'm actually a little bit of a fraud uh, in that uh, I received smicha in Israel in 1987, sort of by accident. I've spent my whole life uh, being immersed in Judaism in, in all kinds of ways. Um, I was a lawyer for 50 years, and a significant part of my practice was doing bilateral work between the United States and Israel. Um, I've represented uh, many of the uh, ministries there, the uh, foreign ministry, the treasury, uh, the uh, defense ministry. I've worked shoulder to shoulder with every um, every prime minister from, uh, from uh, Shamir through Bibi. Uh, was actually quite friendly with BB, um, and uh, I actually uh, it's true uh, claiming the title of rabbi in public because it's the only thing I find harder than wearing a yarmulke in public. Uh, wearing a yarmulke is, has its own burden uh, for me, at least, in that uh, um, I'm always concerned what people think I'm doing, um, and. Uh, I find it uh, the same with respect to uh, being identified as a rabbi. Um, I too am the uh, child of survivors. Uh, 
My father was in Auschwitz, was liberated in Dachau. My mother was in Bergen-Belsen. I've served as a, uh, a docent uh, at three Holocaust museums, at the Wiesenthal Center, the LA Museum of the Holocaust, as well as the uh, Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York. Um, I've lectured widely on on the uh, on issues of the show. I organized a large New York group of two uh, Gs, um, and I've been blessed in that uh, almost every aspect of my life has involved uh, Judaism and leadership, um, and. Um, uh, I've, I've been a guest scholar at a variety of schools all around all around the world. Actually, I've lectured um, on issues pertaining to the uh, Shoah. I've written widely about it. Um, so I am what I used to call, uh, as a young lawyer, a professional Jew, and frankly, I'm proud of it. Very good. So now I'm going to involve the the audience. So I would again ask all of you to get on camera so we can see you. I'm going to ask this question and I would like you to answer it in chat. How are you feeling today? And and also, sorry, how are you feeling today? And what would you like out of today's program? And we will see the chat um, fly by. So I'm going to open my chat and have you uh, put that in chat. And I'll see if I can call out some of these as they come in. You want us to go to the chat? Yes, put, it in, put it in chat. Ah, you open your chat and put it in. Okay. Okay, I see somebody has said, I'm worried. I can't sleep. My family is in Israel and I'm worried 24 hours. My intergenerational trauma from the show is kicking in. I thought I had it contained. If you want to raise your hand and speak to that question, please do so now. So if anybody wants to say something, Sammy, unmute yourself, please. Keep it short and brief, but we definitely want to hear from you. Sammy, by the way, is a, uh, is a survivor and was unfortunately uh, tested on uh, when he was a child. So go ahead. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I went through, like most of, uh, of you, through the gamut of emotions. Uh, but in every generation, they tried to annihilate us. And we are here, we prevail. So I have the full confidence that uh, Israel will accomplish its goal to get rid of uh, uh, the murderers, uh, Hamas. Uh, they will have to stay in uh, Gaza for uh, quite a while until they will be able to get a regime that 
is workable you can work with uh, but uh, i firmly believe that uh, we will win we will prevail and regardless okay of what the world wants we are here to stay forever and ever um amen does anybody else want to add their voice to uh, what Sammy said? Just raise your hand or hit the, uh, you'll see on the very bottom of your toolbar, it makes it a lot easier for me to hit the reactions button and raise your hands like my hand is raised now. Jackie, I would hope that you would contribute. I expected to see you. And so unmute yourself and provide us your comments. Keep them short, please. Yes, in fact, it's more of a question. Is that okay? It's okay. Okay. Uh, I, that I would like to address to the rabbi individually. How do you feel today as rabbis with the situation, for example, of the gun training, which is happening today within the Jewish community, as it's presented on CNN? I don't know if it's true or not. And as uh, what was the extreme decision for... Jerusalem rabbis and the chief rabbi to say orthodox go to war. Well, I guess that's a question for you to start with, Francis. So why don't you take tackle that one? And we'll sure. I'm not sure the, the first thing about gun training, I, I didn't catch. I'm not sure I understand. Okay. The uh, CNN was showing this morning that the Jewish and the young Jewish community of uh, uh, the United States is buying guns to protect themselves and also uh, getting some training. And in those images, you have a rabbi standing next to them or a religious Jews wearing a kippah. But this is uh, it's guns and, and, and self-defense classes to protect themselves. I've seen those um, too. So, and then there was another question, a part B was, how do you feel about the Harari uh, once not wanting to participate in the in the IDF, and now are many are rushing towards the IDF? Right. So um, I think self defense is something that's simply a good idea. Um, that everybody who is able to do so has responsibility. I am not doing it anymore, but I my uh, old community in Jerusalem, I was part of the civil defense um, patrols um, carrying a, a giant gun that was totally outdated that I was uh, very scared of using, not because of uh, the violence that was caused someone else, but just uh, you know, the, the, the potential damage I would do to myself. But, uh, but I, th I, think, um, I think it's, you know, in terms of the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox crowd. So something similar happened in the Hebron riots in 1929. It, the, the, the riots uh, focused on uh, one of the, at the time, probably maybe the, the largest yeshiva in Israel at the time, which came from Europe, um, from Slobodka. It got settled in Hebron, now it's in, in Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem. Um, when they saw that, you know, they were just as much in danger, so they uh, all of a sudden became closer to the Zionist movement. That's way back in 1929. Um, and I think something similar is happening now. I think it's a positive thing. 
Um, I, you know, as, as um, Golda Meir expressed, you know, it, it's sad for us as religious Jews and certainly as rabbis to have to deal with this need to defend ourselves and, and uh, you know, the, the consequences that it, the, you know, the, the, the spiritual consequences on our souls. Um, it is a famous passage that King David was disqualified from uh, building the temple because he killed uh, enemies who deserve to die because it takes its toll on our spirit. And it's not something that we want or look forward to. On the other hand, I see no choice. And I think it's positive that more people take part. Again, I think that the rabbinic um, voice in this is to keep reminding our in our community that this is not something that's ideal. It's not something we, we don't take pride or any sort of joy in you know doing violent acts that uh, that will you know not only impact and, and possibly kill other human beings but impact on our own souls okay uh, rabbi jerry you have your hand raised how do you want to respond yes i do um i i am very uh, well let me begin let me begin backwards um i received weapons training from tahal um in order to be able to uh, do the legal work for them that I was able to do. Um, and since I completed that course, I learned a couple things, uh, one of which is one must have tremendous respect for a gun and be very, very wary about having one available. Uh, I also confess that uh, my two sons-in-law recently acquired handguns. My ex-wife just acquired a handgun. And I firmly believe it's a terrible mistake. Um, there isn't sufficient training available to someone who's picking up a gun currently to be able to uh, to utilize it in a safe manner. Uh, statistically have been proven over and over again that gun ownership increases dramatically the odds of someone in the family uh, being uh, being um, being shot, you don't ward off a burglar because you have a gun. It just doesn't happen, um, and there isn't sufficient training. I'm always reminded of uh, an incident in New York. Some of you may may have heard about involving a, a young African American uh, whose name was Abner Luima, uh, who was uh, spied by a New York City police patrol. Uh, they thought he was trying to break into a, to a building in Harlem. And an anti-crime unit uh, surrounded him. I think it was about six or eight officers, all well-trained, all current on their requirements for target shooting. Um, Abner Luima reached into his pocket to get his ID. One of the cops yelled, gun, and they shot him. They shot 54 times, 54 times. And they hit him 11 times and they killed him. Um, so bear in mind, if, if uh, policemen who are uh, regularly trained uh, with respect to guns and how to use them, and how to aim and so on, if they are so wrong, uh, the likelihood is that any one of us will be so wrong. Um, we, are not, we are not going to beat off uh, anti-Semitism because we're all well armed. 
Um, there's a canard that's constantly being repeated uh, that said that if the Jews during the year of the Nazis had guns, um, Nazism would not have spread. Fact is that the uh, Allies had guns, they had planes, they had tanks, they had the uh, latest in weaponry, air forces, and so on. And it took them six years with all these armed forces to defeat the evil of, of the Nazis. So one Jew sitting in uh, Slobodka with a, with a pistol is not going to fend off the uh, the uh, the hordes. And one Jew sitting in um, in Flatbush in, in Brooklyn with a gun is not going to prevent or stop anti-Semitism. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Rabbi. I'm going to try to keep these uh, conversations as short as we can, so we want to get to more. I have Ruth, you've been patient. Please unmute yourself and uh, nice to see you again. I'm glad you're here with us. Uh, it's terrific. So Hi, Jerry. They're free. Thank you for uh, sending me a reminder. Uh, first of all, I live in where you, Israel. Where are, you, where are you Zooming in from? I'm in Haifa. I'm home. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm in Israel. And uh, I want to relate to this gun thing. Uh, there is a tremendous... Uh, movement in Israel also for people to get guns at the moment, not not revolvers, but long guns, uh, because the feeling is that if the people in the Otefaza had had guns when the terrorists uh, invaded and when they opened their safe rooms and they even if they had had revolvers, uh, there would not have been so many terrible, not so many dead. One second, I'll just turn off my daughter. And there would not have been so many dead, and and we we might have seen a whole different thing. In fact, in places where the security detail of the kibbutz or of the moshav was able to get to the place where they stored their weapons, or if they had them, they they actually were able to prevent a terrible massacre. I I am not a great proponent of carrying weapons, but. My oldest son carries uh, a gun, and two of my uh, sons-in-law also carry guns. Uh, one of them lives in Bethel, the other one lives in Jerusalem. Uh, their work takes them into what we call the Shtachim, to Gush Etzion, for instance, and other places. I don't think that uh, for, for hapless uh, academia, college graduates in, in America, to go out and buy guns may necessarily be a good idea. But if they have proper training, perhaps something else should be done. I remember the days of the Jewish Defense League, and they did a very, very, very good job preventing uh, some bad stuff uh, geared against the Jews, like uh, freeing uh, Russian Jewry, etc. So the idea of carrying gun, you know, it's something. I don't have one. I told my kids I wanted one. They told me to shut up. So I don't have a gun. All right, so uh, Ben, Rabbi Ben, go ahead, you have to say. If Israel loses one war, the Holocaust will happen again because the world, not just the Western part, Europe, hates the Jews just as much as they hated the Jews during the Nazi era. Anti-Semitism never went away. It just changed form. And as far as needing a JDL, I helped Rabbi Kahana. He was assassinated. We need a JDL. As far as carrying weapons, 
before I went to Yeshiva University, I took private lessons in judo. I carried mace and a switchblade at YU because in those days, in the 60s, they were slicing up yeshiva kids. So yes, it's bad today. And by the way, it can get worse. Let me just say hello to my friend, Sammy. He's a, a, a treasure and we need you, Sammy. All right, and uh, Cheryl, Cheryl, go ahead. You have, a, you have your hand raised. Yeah, on this uh, gun thing, it's interesting because I, you know, I have been a sort of pacifist kind of person all my life. I've known now a lot of pacifists who have done a complete turnaround after this situation. I personally don't own a gun. I was approached to be trained by somebody who does it for a living and is doing it for Jews for free, which I think is awesome. I wouldn't have a gun unless I was completely trained, but, uh, and I'm not sure I want a gun only because I don't know if I trust myself with a gun. Like I could hurt myself. <laughs> I'm not so, I'm kind of a clumsy person, but um, if well-trained, I'm okay with it. But here's what I want to say about it. There is a value in doing something very proactive that makes us feel a little safer. And I have to say that here in the United States, I'm finding, I, I keep hearing people from Israel saying, I've come to the United States and I wanna go back because I felt safer in Israel than I do here. I don't feel safe in the United States. I found myself walking home alone one night. I got stuck somewhere, I didn't have a phone. And I kept thinking, you know, oh my God, and I kept having to tell myself, this isn't Gaza, you're okay, you're okay. But I had that thing going through me, like I wished I had a gun just in case. Not saying, you know, I think everybody gets to do what makes them feel safe in their own home. I don't think that it's one way or the other. Um, I wanted to just say something because Ben, you said in the 60s, they were cutting up yeshiva students. And I wanna share that, first of all, Growing up, I'm third generation and it's not Holocaust, it's pogroms. And I grew up hearing my mom said every day of my life almost, sir, tuck in your star of David, there's gonna be another roundup. Every day I heard that all the time. And then I, I had a foster mother who used to say, will you pick up a gun, will you pick up a gun? That was a very abrupt thing to hear as a child, would you pick up a gun? It frightened me, I didn't understand it. Now I understand it. When I was, Growing up in the 60s, we went on a field trip and I had to witness my classmates stabbed, several of them taken to the hospital. I was in, I don't know, I was eight years old, maybe seven, eight, something like that. In a field trip, they were yelling, kike, 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 kike. So this was happening everywhere. And I remember, I have memories, and I don't think I would be against anyone feeling you know, getting trained and, and having a gun. If it helps, it helps. Just even our own trauma. Go okay. ahead, sorry. I'm gonna switch gears a little bit, Mark. I'm gonna hold off on your question, but I wanna ask the, the four rabbis, do any of you or each of you have traumas from the Holocaust, intergenerational survivor traumas? Will you share with us if you do and what briefly is your trauma? I have traumas. Uh, I've written about my traumas and things that Cheryl would be interested in in my many books. I've written about 15 books. The last one, which is a bit controversial, but I go into genetics and transference and all that, is called Gilgul, 
Is there such a thing as reincarnation in the Holocaust? It's worth reading. One of my uh, late books deals with exactly what you do, Cheryl. I'm not a psychologist. My doctorate is in education. And that's where you would come in. Yes, I have traumas. Uh, there's not a night, not a night that uh, I, I don't have dreams because I grew up in a Holocaust home. While they loved me, they had issues. And, you know, many people say they have loving parents and blah, blah, blah. I also had loving parents, but my loving parents had issues. And those issues transferred to me. I'm an only child. My biggest regret uh, is that my parents were not able to see what I promised them, that I would fill a bus with children. I have four children and right now 14 grandchildren. Some of them are in Israel. I have trauma. My Some of my grandchildren have trauma. But, you know, for me, trauma was good. That gave me the wish uh, to do what I do. And without the trauma, I wouldn't be doing it. Okay, Cheryl? You want to know if I have, I think, I don't think there's a, a born Jew in the world that doesn't have trauma. That's my own personal belief. We've been, it has been transmitted epigenetically and genetically to us. Whether we hear it in our homes or not, whether we've witnessed anything, I believe every single one of us experiences. In fact, our entire legacy is a legacy of trauma, you know? Um, but yeah, I have, I, I have it from hearing. I mean, I remember being, you know, in a, in a um, family reunion and them discussing the, an entire family that was, was killed in their home, part of our family in Russia. You know, you hear things, you're child, you're a child and you're, you go to bed afraid. You don't know what you've heard. And my dad didn't say very much. He was eerily silent on the subject other than to talk about his dad and some of his trauma from the war. But my mom talked a lot about it. She had tremendous fear. So from that, just hearing that stuff, but mostly genetically, in my belief, mostly it's it's uh, comes down epigenetic. Francis? Yeah, so uh, I'm also a, a second-generation uh, person, although I feel like uh, I, my background is from uh, North Africa, meaning <clears throat> my parents uh, lived there during the Holocaust. Hold on one and, second. Hold on one. I want to introduce you to Jackie Gamash. We just right, we've met. We've met uh, sort of online. Jackie is a survivor yeah. from Tunisia, so just so you right. know. Right. Yeah, I'm also from Tunisia. So, um, you know, one doesn't compare tragedies, but obviously what the Jews in North Africa experienced was so much less than what happened in Europe. Um, I don't know that my parents had trauma. My, my father was uh, in a labor camp for a couple months. Um, my mother's house was uh, taken over by German soldiers uh, also for a couple of months. I mean, the, the, the German occupation of Tunisia was basically three months. Um, before that, the Vichy French were in, but that's, that's um, it's, again, that's not, we're not, we're not talking about serious, uh, serious uh, Holocaust type you, stuff. Do you exhibit any trauma? You, Sorry? Do you exhibit a trauma? You... No, so that's what I'm saying. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that they really, you know, they they certainly had very strong memories about it. Um, I think but I might have mentioned. But you, you don't carry your own. I no, I, I don't. It's it's very interesting. Um, I also went to to Yeshiva University, and um, 
particularly I had a study partner for a number of years, actually he's, he's now in Jerusalem, I've seen him from time to time, um, whose experience was so radically different um, you know, you know the the, the worst case scenarios of, of parents uh, yelling in their sleep, and he, you know the, the trauma carried over so completely to him, and along with certain attitudes, um, you know I'm, I'm I'm hoping we're going to get to some of those issues later in, in terms of to to what extent um, this is dysfunctional. To to why don't you ask your, why, don't, why don't you ask the question? So, so, so the question that I want to ask, again, I'm thinking from an Israeli perspective where it's um, not only is the trauma there, but it's, we're educated to have it in Israel. It's part of the educational uh, system is, is, is selling the narrative and, and you hear it um, throughout, um, you know, Netanyahu has, has pushed this line. Many, many, you know, his father did, um, you know, the idea that um, all anti-Semitism is the same and they're all out to get us. Um, and of course, the, the central motif is the Holocaust and, and therefore the, the whole notion that Israel is a um, sort of a, a way to prevent any other Holocaust. And, and, and the, you know, the big question that came up and it's been discussed in the media um, is to what extent the comparison to what happened on October 7th and the Holocaust is um, is correct. Certainly it's very motivational. Um, and I find that when non-Jewish politicians are familiar with our narrative, they understand this a lot better. They understand why our response in Gaza is so massive. Um, and and so you know someone like Joe Biden is is very sympathetic because he 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 gets the narrative. Um, where the I want to stop. I want to stop you there. So yeah. We, so Francis proposed the question, which is to make a comparison between the Holocaust and October seventh. And before I ask the rabbis to respond, I want to ask the audience to respond. But first, I want to see you. So those of you who have not put on your camera, please. It's a lot easier for our audience uh, and our rabbis to identify and inc feel inclus inclusive and not look at black tiles. If you have to uh, not go on camera, I can understand, but there are many of you who have yet to uh, go on camera. So anybody who wants to answer uh, Francis' question about comparisons, I know I wanna get to you, Ruth, but you have a same comparison from Israel as he does. I'm more interested in having someone who can answer. So the rabbi uh, waving his hand, and then I hope someone from the audience will come forward and um, say it. I see Cheryl, you wanna jump in too. Hold on, I'll, I'll make it all worthwhile. Go ahead, Ben. Uh, I am supposedly a Holocaust scholar, which means I spent my whole life studying the Holocaust. This business of saying that this never happened during the Holocaust, cutting babies in half, cutting their heads off, shooting them, it did happen. Now, by the way, let's not call this a Holocaust, because it's not. The ramifications are the same. It doesn't what become- What would you call it? Right now, I'm, I'm talking, I would say it's a mini Holocaust, but I wouldn't say it's a Holocaust. A Holocaust- it's pogrom. A pogrom. A Holocaust means that every Jew is gonna get wiped out. That's what Hitler wanted. 
And you don't think the Nazis did the same thing to Jews? Don't you see the videos of people being uh, thrown into pits? Don't you see the videos of people being slaughtered and shot in front of their children? It's the same thing. I don't know why they're saying it just hasn't happened since the Holocaust. Okay, Ben, I want to caution you. We're trying to reduce and deactivate people in this audience and not, not activate them. So I know it's a passion of yours to be passionate about the Holocaust, but I want to also temper that. And Cheryl, I want you to help me. So where are you? I, I don't see Cheryl. Maybe she stepped out. I'd like to address the question you asked, Jeffrey, and I'll, I'll be brief. Sure. Who is speaking? Okay, Jerry, go. The issue of intergenerational transfer of uh, trauma has been the subject that's been uh, uh, vastly covered uh, by many, many different survivors, uh, 2Gs, I should say. Um, if you're interested in the subject, you really have to begin with a study done by Rachel Arier at Masonic Hospital in New York. Uh, where she studied, she had a longitudinal multi-generational study. Can you put and, that? Can you put that study in chat so everyone else who is here? Just look up Rachel Yehuda. I don't remember the name of the study, but here's the thing. I put her name in so we can get it. I on. will do that. Thank you. So, so she had this this longitudinal study uh, conducted very scientifically. I've known uh, some of the uh, psychologists that she's worked with. Uh, and when it was published, it was widely uh, criticized by the uh, by the uh, by psychologists and psychiatrists. And uh, ultimately, Rachel Yehuda um, uh, withdrew her findings because of this onslaught of, of criticism. Now, do I believe that there is such a thing as an intergenerational transfer of Holocaust? You're damn right. I believe in that. Um Anyone here who's a 2G uh, will know that you can instantaneously identify uh, another 2G. Uh, I was married twice. Both times I was married to a, to a, a 2G. Um, never really thought about it. But in hindsight, I can't imagine being, being married to someone who hasn't had the shared experience of being the child of, of survivors and um, frankly being traumatized by it. Uh, thing that's unique about all two Gs uh, is that they each share a, a Mishigas. And uh, I don't know about the rest of you, but when I talk to somebody, I can tell within 10 minutes whether he or she is a 2G. Okay. And Cheryl, go ahead. And then Mark, I'm coming to you next. I'm sorry. I thought that the que the question was just the discernment between what's happening now and the Holocaust. Is that correct? No, go ahead. Answer it the way you want to. Um, okay, because it was I heard two different questions. I heard initially. Uh, I think Francis was talking about should we? I think his idea is should we be continuing the narrative? That's what I heard him say. Is that correct? And then I heard you, Jeffrey, say, "Is this a Holocaust?" So I'll just say, in my own opinion. Please. To me, it matters not what we call it. It's a pogrom in my mind. To me, it's a pogrom. It has the potential easily to become a Holocaust. That's how I see it. And to me, there's almost no difference whatsoever because to me, the bottom line is they want to commit genocide against our people. I don't know what you want to call it. Anything you want, it's, it's ultimately the desire for the destruction of all Jews on earth. Ruth, I'm going to get to you. I, I know you're patient, 
but Mark has been sitting out there on in on the bench. So go ahead, Mark. I don't know if you can. I can. Can you hear me all right, Jeff? So we have an echo. So you have you got to delete. You got to take out one of you know. We got a little bit sidetracked before, and whether or not individuals should have weapons. What's bothering me, I think, is that we're failing to sh to generalize this from just a crime against Jews to a crime against humanity. And I really have questions of why it is that other countries and other groups such as college students don't see that. Part of the problem I, I think is, now I was a teacher for 32 wonderful years and I had very few Jews in my class. And yet when I taught sixth graders about the Holocaust, it always made an impression because I generalized it to a crime against humanity that could happen again to others. And I think that's something that we have to look at. How do we take this brutal act, which I don't even call a pogrom, I call this a clear violation of every standard that has ever existed and a crime against all human beings that could happen anytime, anywhere. The same people who hate Jews hate Christians. They hate anybody who does not share their ideas and their obsession to wipe anyone who is not of their faith into the sea. Uh, I will explain one thing. Uh, I was born two years and one day after mom was freed from Auschwitz in a displaced persons camp in Germany. And as Jeff knows, my parents rarely if ever spoke about the Holocaust. And it was only when I turned 70 that I fully realized that the Ludge ghetto was not Anatevka while researching my books. And the reason I think some books about the Holocaust do not work as well as they should is because they ignored this obligation to show people this was not just about Jews. This is a universal violation. It is a universal theme. And I think that's what we have to look at. When we talk to our children and we talk to non-Jews, we have to listen to them and help them understand this is not a Jewish issue solely, but it has much more importance, much more significance. Okay. I hope I expressed that without enraging anybody. Well, we're raging, raging is fine. And Abraham, I'm going to go to you next. You've been patient. So patient. Thank, you. thank you. Well, I, I'm patient because I, I, I'm. Oh, is that me? Are you on two? Are you on two devices? Two devices? No, I'm only Mark, on Mark, Mark, mute yourself. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, yeah. So 
you know, I, I I'm listening as much. My patience is because I'm I'm fascinated by all the opinions, some of which I, of course, agree with and some that I don't. I will say that I've uh, read Rabbi Rosenberg for many, many years, and I, I appreciate his anger and his uh, putting an a face on the second generation. I also was born in a displaced persons camp in Germany in which uh, I still maintain a, a very strong contact with the German community there for a number of reasons, but I won't go into that. You tell I, us, you I'm tell sorry. Us, tell us which DP camp. Uh, Landsberg, Amlech. It, okay. was the, it was the place where Hitler wrote Mein Kampf as a prisoner in the uh, fortress there. It was also the third most important Nazi city uh, during the Third Reich as a city of German youth, because they all had to go see the uh, cell that he was in as a, as a way of, of uh, remembering uh, the, the, the fear as a, as a prisoner uh, and, and many other things. Uh, but it's a community that is now beginning to change rapidly, even though for years it, it denied any aspect of its history during the Third Reich, said we're just like any other little town no different, but they were different. There were also uh, 11 or 12 uh, subcamps of Dachau in that whole area. Uh, but what I wanted to mention a couple of things. You know, I am a German historian and I've published in, in German history, published on the Holocaust. And I, I, a couple of things that I, I want to mention. I also teach genocide. And I've worked with a number of different communities that have undergone genocide as they've been called by the United Nations. It's the only way you can actually place uh, the term genocide on a, a, an event as long as the United Nations says it is. But of course, many people disagree with that. Anyway, the idea of, of uh, intergenerational trauma uh, is very much a part of their lives as well. There's no question about it. So uh, even though there are still articles coming out saying there's no such thing. We don't have the real evidence. You know, it, it's there. And, you know, I, as somebody said, uh, it, it, they can tell a, uh, a 2G uh, within 10 minutes. Well, I can tell a survivor or a second generation or third generation uh, of uh, another genocide that uh, they're also part of that. But what I wanted to really mention was this. Yesterday, I observed and was part of a group uh, discussing the Israeli-Hamas war. And it was a group uh, entirely in favor of calling Israel a settler colony. Okay. So they said, well, you know, you, you can't just look at this. You have to look at the historical context. So, of course, they go back to Theodore Herzl. They go back to the first and, and, and several other Zionist uh, uh, international conferences. They go back to the various uh, aliyahs that, that took place uh, to uh, Palestine uh, over the years. Uh, and so I said, well, that's great. I think I'd like to discuss a little bit of the historical context as well. I want you to start thinking about 1929, as, 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 as one of the, the rabbis mentioned, Tevron, yes? 70 Jews were murdered, chopped to the same kind of, of horrible uh, conditions, except that there were no weapons, that were no guns. They basically used machetes, knives, whatever, okay? That was organized by the, ultimately, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. 
named El Husseini. Okay. He was also responsible for a, a pogrom in Iraq called the Farhud, which took place in 1940 41 against Jews in Baghdad and other places. But his most interesting contribution to the Holocaust was a meeting he had with Adolf Hitler, in which he said to Adolf Hitler, and it's 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 on paper, it's, it was taken down by people sitting uh, at the meeting because Husseini, I don't think, spoke German. Uh, he said, basically, look, you have what you call the final solution to the Jewish problem. That Jewish problem also exists in Palestine with the Yeshuv, the Jewish community of that time. So I said, well, you know, how can anybody who is a Jew living in Israel, knowing that this was the ultimate aim of the spiritual head of religious life in Jerusalem and the other areas around it, not be fearful, not only of what happened, but of a state that is a one-state solution or even a state that is a two-state solution. Because if that mentality hasn't changed, the idea that we have to eliminate the Jews, then how do you make peace and how do you create an institutional, possible institutional relationship with Palestinians who now for the last 75 years have grown increasingly hateful of Jews in Palestine and Israel. And, you know, are you going to sit down and just say to them, forget all of that, we're, we're good, you know, we'll start all over again. I don't think it's possible. I don't know what the solution is going to be after this war ends. But I do know this, that we are beginning to lose, I think, a large part of a younger generation of Jews in this country. I don't know about uh, young Jews in, in Europe or, or in, in Israel at the moment who see themselves as what Isaac Deutscher, famous author, said, as non-Jewish Jews, which is to say that they feel that Judaism it has led them to simply be... Uh, used as as kind of of uh, material for the propaganda that Zionism and Israel uh, supposedly in their minds uh, stands for, which is to whitewash American Jewish kids in Hebrew school and other places to the idea of the love of Israel, okay, and the importance of Israel. One of the people on that panel was a member of these uh, democratic socialists, which, is very much involved in anti-Israel activities. And I said to him, well, do you think that at the end of this, if for some reason anti-Semitism begins to really move as it did, uh, as it's doing in Europe, that you will be spared from this? Because there were plenty of Jewish socialists, Bundists as well, who were slaughtered without any reaction as to what their political orientation was. So that concerns me. Are we going to lose young people because they believe that in a sense they have to follow the, the dictum of we have to be a light unto the nations? Hey, Abram, I want to personally... I'm thank sorry, you. but I don't want to talk anymore, but I, I just wanted to bring those points. Oh, I think right. those are great. And I'm, I appreciate you coming on board to, to give us your thoughts. I hope you'll return uh, I think your historical view is terrific. And if you look at chat, 
You have many people who are writing in chat that they're agreeing with you. I'll tell you one quick story. You know, I am doing these uh, since the war started. I made a commitment to do these programs about the war and the Shoah monthly. And on last month, there was a um, someone from San Diego whose his name was Hillel Levy. You can go and see the recording on YouTube from the group. He was distraught. His son, age 27, he went through Hebrew school. He was bar mitzvahed. He went to, he was confirmed. His father is very uh, modern Orthodox. And his father was distraught because his son is now marching for Palestine. And so your point is happening at, from a standpoint of youth, um, not knowing which side to be on. So thank you for coming. I also wanna um, go to another professor from Penn State. My friend, uh, Michael Polgar is here with us. So unmute yourself, Michael, and please share your view he, and tell us a little bit of what background you do at Penn State. Thank you, Jeff, and greetings, everybody. It's great to be part of this group and this uh, initiative that Jeff has, has uh, been working so hard on. Um, <clears throat> my name is Michael Polgar. I'm a, a son and grandson of survivors of Bergen-Belsen. Um, my, um, my family situation is I, I'm married with three daughters, all of whom are happy with their Jewish identity, all of whom have a, a certain amount of Jewish education. Um, but all of us are, I, I wouldn't say I feel unsafe, but, but more people in my family feel unsettled by, uh, the Israeli Hamas, uh, war, obviously than, than just us. Um, in the, in the teaching that I do, and I teach undergraduates, usually first or second year students, and I teach two different Holocaust courses and sociology as well. Um, in the teaching that I do, I really emphasize the importance of teaching anti about anti-Semitism as a form of racism. Um, this was even before current events. Uh, anti-Semitism and racism are importantly linked, uh, and that, that's a term I used uh, um, from our ambassador, um, Deborah Lipstadt, uh, in an interview she did a couple years ago. These are linked problems. And since most of my students are not Jewish and don't know very much about Judaism as a whole, it's important for me to uh, help them understand both that anti-Semitism is a problem and that the Holocaust is, was and is a, a, a serious problem of genocide. Now, when I started teaching the, the courses, um, I quickly realized, and I started to write books about this, uh, that there's different schools of thought about how to do Holocaust education. There's an ongoing, very active conversation about how to do Holocaust education in the media and in the Jewish community. And, you know, we, we agree now on how to define the term Holocaust, and we agree now as an international community on how to define the term genocide. Um, but we're still working on how to define anti-Semitism and the truth is that we, we need a lot of good adjectives and nouns. So just like with racism, there are, and sexism, there are types of anti-Semitism. And I didn't realize how many there should be and, and could be until, you know, reading Daniel Goldhagen, you, you, you see eliminationist anti-Semitism, a very strong 
uh, a term to describe a very horrible, horrible um, thing, which is the Holocaust. And the Holocaust is a, a unique event. It's a uniquely Jewish event. But we we've done what Mark Newhouse just mentioned, which is to uh, to generalize the problem of of um, uh, of genocide and and to recognize that it while the the Jews were particularly persecuted in the Holocaust, genocide didn't start or or end with the Holocaust. Uh, but genocide has a very high threshold as a as an international crime. Uh, not just a crime against humanity, but an international crime um, and and more than a war crime, genocide is a kind of highest level of persecution. And so the nascent field of genocide studies is is starting to understand all the different crimes um, and and genocide is kind of the worst of the worst. Um, it's being used now, it's being weaponized. The word genocide, the word Holocaust, even today in our discussion, is being used to show how serious the problems of the world are. Um, it, we should not. The U.S. Holocaust Museum Teaching Guide tells us use Holocaust as a metaphor, but it does get used as a metaphor over and over and over again. Um, so regardless of what we know and, and, and what is the truth about what's happening, there are many things happening now in the Israeli-Hamas conflict, uh, but the Holocaust lasted 12 years. The, try to try to explain to a young person what is the Holocaust. It's like saying, you know, what is the Jew? We can't do it. It's too much. It's many things. It's it's different in Germany, from Poland, from Romania, from France. So when we describe these things, it's important to pluralize and complicate them. Start with a definition. Try to see if something lives up to the definition. This is what a genocide trial would do for you know somebody from uh, you know Slobodan Milosevic from uh, from former Yugoslavia would be tried on the basis of what he did, uh, and he was. Uh, so see what's going on and see if it reaches that level of of criminal activity. But call it what it is. You know, it is criminal. It is brutal. It is horrible. And 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 there's no question that it's wrong. What what happens in these in these mass killings of of, of civilian people, and then terrorism is a, another term that you want to to clarify. And the more we clarify our terms, and the more we differentiate between types of things, so types of racism, institutional versus interpersonal, types of anti-Semitism uh, against Jews or against Jews as an idea. Uh, there's there's all kinds of different variations on these problems. Um, but searching for, for common definitions and then differentiating the way any, any you know, analytic enterprise does, differentiating, um, like we talked about, you know, this is a pogrom. Yeah, but a lot of students don't know what a pogrom is. They don't, they don't have that experience or they don't have that understanding. And these are environmental. Well, I, I believe in trauma, I, I, I think these are environmental conditions that people are experiencing and as environmental experiences they need to be understood uh, for us to feel uh, safe in our environment uh, not just whether we have uh, emotion or, or trauma or, or other kinds of things like that anyway that's my two cents so i don't think i don't think that uh, we have started or, or or can see another holocaust yet we could use holocaust or genocide as a metaphor uh, but I don't think you know, up to this point we've reached that level, um, although it is in the 
uh, the you know founding documents or some of the documents of Hamas, and uh, it's it's important to differentiate, but it's also important to complicate important to complicate the types of of problems and crimes that we're seeing. Well, thank you, Michael, and I appreciate you, uh, Francis, for adding your two cents into chat because we do not want to have disrespectful. Uh, chat going on between uh, parties, so leave your politics at home. Uh, this is not where we are as a group wanting to have respectful, uh, we must have respectful uh, discussion in chat. So thanks, Francis, uh, for your comment. I also want to go to, uh, Francis, you have your hand raised, so I assume you want to add something to the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Um, just going back to what Mark spoke about in terms of universalizing the Holocaust, and I think Michael sort of uh, addressed it on, to some extent as well. Um, I, I think it's an important point. Um, I certainly identify with the Armenians in terms of their suffering and, and their Holocaust. And there, and there have been, as has been mentioned, any number of similar situations. Um, my concern in terms of Holocaust education for, for Gentiles, when we universalize the issue, we as Jews, um, that we end up creating a larger number of weak supporters. In other words, I care for the Armenians, but am I really gonna go and, and out of my way and, and, and you know, there's a war between Armenia and Ar Azerbaijan. Am I really gonna do something about it? And you know, I'll feel bad. I may write a, a short piece, but the bottom line is, it, it's not going to really um, affect the way I live my life. And I think that's the problem with the um, sort of universalized education by the Holocaust. It, it does not engender um, the sort of you know emotional and 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 heart, heartfelt sympathy for the Jewish people. And the, in the, the as I mentioned before. The friends in the international communities who are stepping up for Israel in this period um, are building on the Holocaust narrative and something they've internalized as, as something that they uh, feel very bad about. Um, you know, Joe Biden's line was just so on target. And I don't know if he wrote it himself or, or it was a speechwriter, but the notion that the world let, let it happen once, um, it's not going to happen again. Now, the truth is it happened as if you universalize the Holocaust it happened more, a lot more than once. It happened also in Cambodia, it happened in Iran, that happened in all sorts of places. Um, but he's referring specifically to the Jewish narrative. And that's the sort of friends that the Jewish state needs at this time. And so I think that, um, while I think there's room for both types of Holocaust education, I think we have to be very careful about universalizing it. And even though the universal aspect is an important aspect, and you know it's part of something that should be taught in general education throughout for all sorts of reasons, I think there's a, an important strategic uh, goal that needs to be attained by teaching the Holocaust as a specifically Jewish uh, issue, and that um, the Jewish people have experienced unusual persecution. The Holocaust is only the, the last chapter and you know, last major chapter of that. And for people to understand that, you know, the sort of um, responsibility 
that the rest of the world has. You know, again, I mentioned Biden. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I didn't vote for Biden. I didn't vote for Trump either. But that's a different story. Um, but I, but I think you know that that sort of response of you know the world let it happen once. We're not going to let it happen again. That's what we want among people. And the fact that it doesn't sell in a lot of uh, universities and certain departments. Um, that's a separate problem, which I think needs to be dealt separately in, in all sorts of other ways. It has to do not only with uh, with the current situation. There, there's, uh, you know, it's a much larger problem, much more complicated problem, and I think it doesn't really fit in so well into the rubric of this discussion. I'm going to pull it. Yeah, back. just can it. I uh, hold on a second? Can I respond? No, sorry, Mike. Um, I'm going to. We have about only 15 minutes more for your official uh, timing. So I want to ask this one question to the to the rabbis. I'd like you to keep your answers as short as possible. And then we'll ask the same question to the audience. So here we go. It's a relatively uh, complex question. How do we explain October 7th and the subsequent war and demonstrations pro and against the October 7th war to young children, to high schoolers, to adults, and to non-Jews? So Cheryl, I'll go to you first. No, 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 no. That's a very big question. <laughs> and of course you come to me. Oh Lord. Um, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't know about children. I have to tell you that's, that's that seems separate to me. Um, I can't answer that. I can go with adolescents to adults, adult, older adolescents. For me, there is no explanation of October 7th without it being in the context of a much larger narrative. There's none. I can't, I can't isolate it because we are a single people in a long stretch of generations, thousands of years old, who have been cyclically targeted. This is only the latest moment. So for me, it has to be in the entire narrative. That's that's really what differentiates this, you know, this kind of hatred from all other hatred in the world and all other genocides in the world. Okay, uh, Jerry. Yes, sorry. sir. Sorry, I got you with your drink. Sorry. And the question again, I'm just focused on something. The question is, how do you explain October 7th and the subsequent war demonstrations pro, pro and against to children, young people, high schoolers and adults and non-Jews? Um, the short answer is the same way we convey uh, information about the Holocaust, the same way we convey information about uh, Hebron, about um, the Kishinev pro pogroms. Uh, they're all incomprehensible. They are all, they all defy human understanding. Um, um, but we try, and that's that's all we can do. We can't excuse what happened. We can just show people what happened, um, and hopefully people walk away with it. That's my take on it. Ben? Yeah, I, I'm not being angry. I'm just being realistic. The, most of the world hates us. I mean, look what's going on. They hate us. And by the way, I have spent my whole life treasuring the word Holocaust. Holocaust is not a genocide. Two different terms. Holocaust refers to the murder of six million innocent Jews, which is different. How do you explain it? I'm, you, you can't explain it. You just can't. How do you explain that half the world 
all of a sudden you've got tens of thousands of people in rallies? The answer is they hated the Jews before. It's just latent tendencies that are coming out. But I have a story for Cheryl, if I may share it, because I think it's important. Um, Cheryl, are you there? You, you'll find this, I think. I'm uh, here. Yeah, you referred to this. So when, when I was about... Uh, uh, well, I think we're discounting too much the fact that uh, uh, Palestinians actually are suffering. The people in Gaza are suffering. And uh, I don't think there's universal hate among the Jewish community uh, against all these people who are victims of Hamas, maybe to a, le a slightly lesser extent than the Jews were, but they're all victims. And I think we need to rep uh, to understand that and to appreciate that. Anyone who tries to kill me or my children or my family, they're not victims. They're my enemy. And I'm going to kill them, murder them, hang them, strangle them before they do that to my family. Okay, stop. Bernard, Bernard. Wait, wait, wait. Sorry for sure. Are, are, the, are the doctors in Gaza who are treating the ill, are they your enemy? If I may also, there. I think maybe Jerry is differentiating Hamas people in the, and soldiers and people who are involved in the militia with babies who have been accidentally killed through this entire, you know, Palestinian babies and their parents. They're innocent. We know they're innocent. Unfortunately, there. I mean, I and I put this post out today. At the end of the day, you have multi-level tunnels built underneath hospitals and schools and civilian homes. At the end of the day, what's Israel to do? They have to do something. We can't allow it to continue. And this is a, it's a horrible carnage, terrible collateral damage, and it's it's heartbreaking. But I don't have a solution. I have a story for you, if I if I may. All right, but you can't you can't bring in all of the the vehement yes. I, i'm not vehement i just tell the truth the the gentleman who reads my books it's all in the books it's the same thing right. i am what i am i know I'm, but i'm I not you, asking you not to not just to cool it so go ahead give your story to cheryl yeah cheryl so uh when i was a little kid my uh parents uh didn't drive they had no money they just had come from the holocaust so uh, Saturday night, uh, the, the, all the greener, the greener are the Holocaust survivors, it's a term, um, used to play cards, Kutenspielen. Some of you 2Gs that have spoken before, you know what I'm talking about. So I was put in a separate room, I'm watching TV, and I hear this conversation, it's in Yiddish, that something about a family before the Holocaust, ba 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 ba, and they were killed. So. I waited until I was in, in my 60s to ask my re remaining cousin, who's dead now, is it true? And she said, yeah, that's true. There were two children, not only one. And by the way, you're not, this one you're not going to like, I promise you. But this is what I feel. There's a difference between, like my father was four years in Auschwitz, four years. And people didn't exist that long, okay? There's a difference. I my father had a lower number than yours. My father was 59173. Okay. What does that have to do with it? No, no. The, he was he was there for three years. Okay. Well, my father was there for four years. The point being, by the way, we, you and I could be related easily. Um, the point that I'm, I'm, I'm basically just trying to, to relate to you, the feelings of a person who grew up in that type of house, 
My mother was in Skarziska, which was a, a camp that made the bombs for the Germans. Their reaction is going to be a little bit different than someone who didn't experience this. So that's all I'm sharing with you. Okay. So I want to pose the same yeah, question me. to the audience, and then we're going I to... Stand. So the question is, where do we go? Here's the question. How do we explain October 7th to high schoolers, children, adults, non-Jews? How do we explain the demonstration? May I, may I address that question? Sammy, yes, of course. I'm, I'm waiting for you. Okay. Uh, I start with poor graders. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. But there is one thing that I do. For me, okay, and I've spoken to 1,200 non-Jewish kids, 400, okay, a lot of non-Jewish kids, never got the backlash. One of the things that I do is the Holocaust is a uh, universal humanitarian issue. At the same time, what I do say is the reason that we have to talk about the Holocaust, because it's the best example what hate can do to a person, can do to a group of people, to a nation, to the world. And I go through the stages, starting with the end of World War I, okay, about six, seven stages that the world did not react in time appropriately, and it kept escalating to a point of no return. And I teach it, okay, learning from history, to see the science of today, and to become upstanders, and to stand up, and not be apathetic to what's happening in the world. I also tell them the one thing, okay, that what's happening to you affects me, okay, affects everybody. So we, okay, the biggest crime that a human being can do, and I believe Ellie Wiesel said it, is not love, okay, the, the, the difference. Uh, the biggest crime is indifference, and we should not be indifferent. So my way of doing it, and I've been very successful, okay, is going through the stages and teaching the young people what hate can do if we don't react in time and appropriately. I, I applaud that. I applaud that. But how do we explain the Crusades? How do we explain Amali? I don't go into it. It has nothing to do No, no, no. I'm, it's the same question. I'm not saying there no, is No, but you, you cannot do it an hour, an hour and a half you cannot go through all the history and everything else. I, I agree I'm with very you. Specific. I I'm agree very specific. You are correct. All right. I want to uh, I want to sort of throw something at you, but before I do, I want to say hello to Ava. Nice to see you on screen. Judy, nice to see you. Thank you for coming. Um, and all of you who are staying here, thank you for contributing. Gabby, nice to see you again coming back. Uh, Ruth, glad to see you. But I want to share my screen and I want to add the last question for you. I don't know what happened. Can you see my screen? I'm going to read this to you. Yes. Never again, again. I wonder, does it make sense to continue to use never again in the light of what happened in Israel conducted by Hamas terror? How many never agains are we are needed again and again before, before we are forced to obsolete never again? For me, never again today seems empty and certainly hollow. Yes, never again continues to echo 
but the meaning is explicitly changed on October 7th. Now, clearly we get the Holocaust reference, but respectively, we as the Jewish diaspora need to brand a new name for global genocide. This horrific genocide continues to afflict the Jewish people, as we saw on October 7th, and this genocide continues to take large numbers of innocent lives. I am deeply saddened by what we see all over the world with more hate, demonstrations against Israel, and the predetermined Jewish hate violence. Let us pray for our sisters and brothers, the hostages, and the IDF for protecting all of us. Um, Israel high. So with that, I want to thank you for coming, for being part of this. I want to let you know that on December 7th, we are doing another series of programs. This is going to be the fourth series. It'll be quite a bit different. Um, it'll be a joyous program for the creative arts using the creative arts to overcome trauma. So it's a very different approach. And I'm really excited about um, curating and producing it. All the presenters are there. I hope you will come back. I will begin advertising the program uh, literally this week. Um, so we'll see you again. Thank you for your contributions. Your program, the program will be record, is being recorded and will be live on stream tomorrow on the JCHR YouTube channel jcrnow.com, our companion website, on Facebook, our, our Facebook group, and everywhere else, Spotify, Apple, uh, Anchor, Google, the works. So see you again. Thanks again. Jeffrey, may, may I ask a quick question? There are a couple of women who would like to talk about relieving some trauma in immediately. Would we be allowed to stay a few minutes or okay. do I need to offer my Zoom? No, no, I don't have to, I don't have to leave. I'll keep it okay. going. Okay, who, no, I mean, at the it? end, afterwards. No, no, go ahead. Betty and somebody else. We're done, so go ahead. Okay. I'll ask them to raise, get on screen and- Yeah, and who was, if Betty, it was- Anybody who wants to stay can stay. Anybody who wants to leave can leave. Betty and Gabby, is that who it was? Yes? Okay, if you guys want to just stay and we'll just talk for a few minutes about it. Okay. All right. Or is everybody else staying too? <laughs> They're not leaving. Nobody's so leaving. Okay. I just, okay, really, real quick. And I think that this is going to be maybe more of a topic December 7th, possibly. But one thing to say is that I think what's happening for um, people is that, bye, Jerry, is that um, right now we are thinking in terms of PTSD, but this is not PTSD. This is acute trauma. This is acute stress disorder. And that's treated a little bit differently. We keep hearing people talking about top-down techniques, you know, sort of calm down and slow breathe and things like that. And that just doesn't work in acute stress. We actually have to do the almost the opposite. To, to deal with the acute stress in the brain, we have to match the intensity. It has to be equal to what we're feeling or it doesn't, it doesn't kick in. So the only breathing techniques that really work, and this is like, we're really dealing with, um, you know, kicking in the vagus nerve, kicking the parasympathetic nervous system in, but they're rescue techniques. They're not going to last, but I will give you some quick ones just for rescue and you can do it throughout the day. And one is kind of odd, it's called pirate's earrings. You just put your, I'm gonna put, show you my ears. You put your fingers inside the ear like that on both sides so that you can actually move your entire ear, not just your earlobe. 
and you gently, and this doesn't work for everybody, but for those it works, it's great. Five circles forward. Kind of hurts a little bit, maybe. Five circles backwards. Doesn't work for everyone. For those it works for, it works very well. There, the, the vagus nerve comes down, it innervates pretty much every organ in the body. It is, it is your key to being able to actually relax. So to do various massages on these two sides, the other way is a weird hum, a low frequency hum. I'm just, these are just basic rescue techniques. And then I'm gonna tell you something else afterwards. A low frequency hum with a little bit of a massage. Like that, because the vagus nerve is innervating back down through the pharynx. So you want to massage it. The other way is to kick in the vagus nerve in the diaphragm. And this is the only kind of breathing that really works as a forced breathing, not a slow breathing, but a forced breathing where you have a double. Here's it's called like a double tap. You go up one, up high until you almost have no you know, space left. And then you push it out really hard and let that exhale be longer than the inhale. So it looks like this. You can do it nasally if you need to, you can do it with your, but it has to be, you, you've got to push it. You have to push your, have no space left so that you're pushing down the diaphragm because that's where your vagus nerve is, is going. The other thing, so those are, there, there are a million hacks, vagus nerve hacks. Now, I want to tell you that in an acute stress state, the most important thing to do for the brain, believe it or not, is keep telling the story. I'm going to give you an example my house burned down and I was in acute stress. And what I had to do to, what, what happens is your brain just sort of, it's like a shattering in your brain. And it just throws it like on the walls everywhere, like an Andy Warhol painting. It's frozen in time in, in a mess. Your brain has to linearize that situation so that it can get a handle on it. And the way it does that is by telling the story. Literally, I walked around saying, we had a fire, my house burned down. We had a fire. There was a fire in my house. The fire happened and this is what happened in the fire. My dog was in the fire. This is what happened. And then I guess kept repeating the story over and over whether people were there, whether they weren't there. Repeat the story. If the people are there, it's great because you've got a, you've got a benefit. First of all, you have the social interaction. And second of all, you're teaching somebody what's going on. Telling that story day and night until you drive yourself and others to distraction is critical to linearizing what's happening in your brain so that your brain can get a handle on it and get on top of it. Until then, you're going to stay in, in this acute stress state. There's a lot of other, there's a lot of other things. The other thing I want to say is, can I say one more thing? And do I have to hurry up and get off? Can I say one more thing really quick? I'm not in Okay, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that there was a lovely, uh, I, I did a training many years ago. Um, it was a, it was an acute stress train and they taught that they had actually gone out into the wild and they watched animals and how they handled, uh, you know, acute stress, acute trauma. So for instance, they saw gazelles that were being chased by tigers or lions. And when, for some reason, a gazelle got to escape, outran a lion or who knows what happened, but it was in safety, suddenly it momentarily looked, would look back, it would know I'm safe, but did it lay down, 
breathe deeply, slow down, calm down. No, it didn't do any of those things. It, that, that's so, so akin to going to the dentist and the dentist says, relax, that doesn't work. What the gazelle did was it jumped up and started running massively in circles, big circles, running all its energy out more almost than when it was running away from the light. Run, 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 run. When it ran its adrenaline as low as it could go, then they would, these, these animals, big animals would start, they, I'm gonna try to show you. Well, first they shake off like a dog when it comes out of a bath, you know, and it's shaking off the water, shaking, shaking, shaking the body like that. And then the next thing it would do is stretch, stretches out its arms, stretches out its legs, limbs, stretch, stretches out its neck, did the whole thing, then it recycled it again, and then finally came to rest. That's actually what works for humans too. And the reason that that works is because what it's doing is it's allowing the flow of all those stress hormones to go through and not get trapped in your body. It, it has to go through. When people are telling us, calm down, sit down, have tea, we're trapping those stress hormones. We're trapping them in the form of neurotransmitters in the vein. We're trapping them in the body. And it's very, it becomes very toxic because they have nowhere to go. They're, they're designed for us to be able to fight or run, and now they're stuck. So they end up hurting us. So it's really important, talk, 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 socialize, 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 and move, whether it's dance, whether it's you know just sitting and doing this. I mean, there's so many things. That's a bilateral stimulation. Whatever you can do to move your body, really, really important. So Cheryl, can you run in circles? I, I can. I actually have open, my, we have an open, you know, uh, plan here. So I can actually run in circles through the kitchen, through the dining room, back to the living room. Like, just like, <laughs> I can. Yeah. Excuse but me. I, yeah. Sorry. So uh -huh. sorry. Excuse me, Jeffrey. Can I make a comment? No can I comment on this? First of all, thank you so much. I don't know if, is it Rabbi Cheryl? Uh, yeah. I came late, so I missed the beginning of the program, but you said something so interesting, and this is what I, I believed, that telling the story and repeating how important it is. I always said that the fact that my mother, after she was in Auschwitz, that after she returned home and that she told the story and talked about it over and over. So I grew up since I was very young with hearing stories. Um, and they talked among each other with the, with the survivor friends or, or with my father, but I overheard and until I was older than I knew they were telling me too. But the fact that she talked about her experiences and about her family, I think that was the reason that she was able to have a, I mean, I had a pretty happy childhood. And I think that's huge. Thank you. Go ahead, Sammy. Yeah. Good to hear. So anyway, thank you guys for saying. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no. no, no, no. Go, 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 go. Oh, no. Are you saying something, Jackie? Or are you uh, saying? I, I want to say 20 words and uh, uh, or a little bit more. If you I want to say thank you to. Say 21, I'm muting you. I want to say thank you to all the scholars and writers that you had at this meeting. And Jeffrey, this is incredible what you have done. I think you deserve to be congratulated. 
no doubt, but that doesn't count. I want to address uh, Mark and Michael and um, Mr. Beck. I think we need to reevaluate, to restudy the way we have been working this last 85 years. We have to review our nomenclature, our words. Holocaust is a very, very bad name. The USC Shoah Foundation is called the Shoah Foundation. Why don't we use the term Shoah instead of Holocaust? I think we, I have proved to myself that I failed. I have been an educator in many fields, but I failed. If I see where we are today. And I wish we could evaluate, get groups together, and Jeffrey, you can do that for us, and to say, what is a program? How do we apply a program, a program today? And I, I want to say that the technology and what's happening, let me share on a, on a very nice note. I'm sorry, Jeffrey. My husband was asking my 11-year-old grandson, how much is four times three? I don't know, Grandpa. What is this six plus six? I don't know, Grandpa. He said, what do you mean you don't know? Okay, six minus two. I don't know, Grandpa. Okay, Grandpa, wait, wait. How much is 2,322 divided by 24? And of course, David, my husband says, I don't know. And the kids take his phone and he say, here, you see, Grandpa, I have the answer. That means we have to judge as, as the elders, as the teachers, are we going to take this trail? Are we going to create a new trail to educate? And perhaps, and perhaps I don't know how to believe in it, as Elie Wiesel said, a better word. But let's forget about never again. Never again put us in the position of suffering from the beginning. Let's forget about hate. Yes, humanitarian and all those words and love it's something that we should carry, not, not the same love that you have for your loved one, but your love that you have for a stranger. I'm sorry. Uh, thank you. Thank you for giving me the chance. Words. That was 22 words. <laughs> no, but you, you, I didn't see in which base in mathematics. You know, <laughs> if it's the base 100, it's only two words. I forgot to say that. All right. I want to ask anyone. <laughs> Anyone else has a chance to want to speak? We do running uh, beyond our uh, overtime here. Thank so, you. Thank uh, you. Thank you all for coming. Put in your calendars uh, December 7th. We're going to repeat um, this program in a different way, uh, much different way through creative arts and helping our audience, international audience. Uh, we now have over 20,000 members in our community on all of our platforms which is amazing. When I started this group in May of 2021, it was just me. And I just can't believe, uh, and I pinch myself every day as to how this has grown. So we'll see you again on, and don't forget on November 19th, we have a terrific program, uh, food memories and speaking Yiddish to chickens, another fun and warm program. We need those programs as well in these times. So I hope you will all dial in on Zoom on November 19th um, and um, be with us. So see you again. Bye-bye.